Take your Bibles. Let's open up to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This will be the third Gospel. A witness of the Lord Jesus Christ will be in Luke chapter 5 today. But Luke chapter 1 tells us that Luke wrote this to the most excellent Theophilus, that he may have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. And so for this season, as we've come together and made the move back to Maiden Lane, we want to be certain of who this Jesus is that we know and follow. We want to shine his light, but we don't, we want to shine the light which he has borne into our hearts so that we can know and follow him rightly with certainty. And as we come to these gospel accounts, across these gospel accounts, you're going to see healing after healing. And so my question today is that do you or does someone you know um, need healing today? Do you or someone you know have a physical ailment, even wrestle with mental illness, uh, chronic pain, chronic conditions of pain, or even terminal disease? Is this you today? Or is this someone that you, you love that needs healing today? Because I do know that in this church community, this small little church community, there are those who've had surgery recently in the past several weeks. There's several who suffer from chronic conditions, some that I sometimes forget about because they continue just to endure in life. There's some who've been abused in physical, emotionally, sexually, spiritually. Some who've experienced the death of a loved one recently. And so we come to the Gospels and Jesus is healing all across the Gospels. And even in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 4, he heals a demon-possessed man in Capernaum. Um, right thereafter, and continuing in chapter 4, he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law who had had a high fever. And it says this in chapter 4, that when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. A lot of what Jesus does in his public ministry is healing. These visible signs of his call to ministry. This is the call that he declares in Luke chapter 4 as he quoted the prophet Isaiah that day in the Nazareth synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So my question is, do you believe that Jesus still has the power and the will to heal today. Um, there's been many deconstructions or deconversions of Christian leaders, pastors, these past many months. There was one Missouri pastor in May, April, May, who renounced his faith in Christ and left his family, did it on Instagram, public performance art. Um, this is what he says. This is a pastor. Used to be. Um, in 40 years, I have never witnessed a single event that was supernatural. Not one. Time and again, I watched people die of cancer. I did funerals for 47 people from the age of 4 to 96. I prayed in faith with hundreds of people for healing to no avail. God, lower, cap, lower case G, didn't answer prayers. 
My devoutly Christian parents were abusive. My marriage was a sham. Prayer was never answered. Miracles were never performed. People died. Children rebelled. Marriages failed. Addictions occurred. All at the same rate as non-believers. The system just didn't work. What would you do if I declared that this week in some deconversion? How would you respond to that? What would you resp- what's your response to this critical skepticism? And we would expect it from a non-believer looking into the church, but someone who served decades in the church, who's now leaving the faith, to say that there's nothing supernatural happening today. It was all sham. It's no different than my eighth grade mythology, he would recount. Actually, a couple days later after his deconversion, it was also found that he was having an affair with a married woman in the church. So I want, we all have got to have an answer to the skepticism or else we're going to become very apologetic for Jesus or embarrassed by our faith. So how do we understand the healings we see in the Gospels in our life now in knowing and following Jesus? And so today we go to chapter 5 and we're going to read about two more healings. Come with me to verse 12. And we will read to verse 26 in today's passage. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him, to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way in to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's Word. Two healings today, a leper and a paralytic. Leprosy. We don't see much about leprosy today. Leprosy is an infectious disease. It causes severe, disforming um, skin lesions, nerve damage once it gets really spreading into your arms and legs. 
all through the body. It's a slow developing disease. It's, it's bacteria-based. But because it was so slow and infectious, and it would also be within a family, um, many in ancient cultures thought it was hereditary or a divine curse. And so with no known cure, they were treated as outcast. But in 1873, it was discovered that leprosy was caused um, by a bacteria, and by the 1970s, a multi-drug treatment of antibiotics was found to be effective in killing this bacteria, a combination of three. And in the last two decades, 16 million people have been cured of leprosy worldwide. And we should be grateful for the advances of modern medicine. And we pray, praise God for this common grace to all. 16 million lives have been changed by the common grace of advancements of modern medicine. But this world is not as it should be. It's fallen because of our sin, and we are suffering disease and death, evil. And so how are you suffering today? We are all suffering. We can compare our sufferings. The thing is, we're all suffering. We're all aging. We're actually all dying. Some are just more acutely aware of it. In creation, we were designed not to die, but to have forever communion with God. But now, in our rebellion, in our sin, we are now separated from God and we die. And so, what marvels in the 1800, late 1800s to find what causes leprosy? And in the, the 1970s and beyond, and now figure out a drug treatment to cure so many. But there would not be enough drugs and enough treatments for us to stop all sickness, all disease, all aging, and all dying. And so, please hear me. We are not anti-science. I thank God for the marvels of the common grace of medicine. But our greatest need is not physical, it's spiritual. We are totally depraved. We are all suffering because of our rebellion to God. And so we can find cures and treatments, but does that solve the separation from God, our sin condition? We cannot heal ourselves. We need divine treatment. We need salvation and we can't figure that ourselves. We need it from without, from God himself. So this is the good news, friends, that God, in his love, sent his beloved son into this fallen world. In the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one God, three persons, the mystery of what this is, that the Father would send the beloved son, and the beloved son who's known eternal glory forever in eternity past, would take on the frailty of human flesh and learn what it means to suffer and to be tempted. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Please, as you just feel yourself breathe there and blood is circulating through your body, the God, the fullness of the deity would take on our flesh and dwell among us in grace and truth. Born Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, growing up in wisdom and stature in the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. He came to save sinners. 
And so we rightfully deserve the judgment of God for our sin. How do we fix the sin problem? Are you a sinner deserving God's judgment? If you say no, cool, I'm so glad to meet you. I've not met a perfect person. No. Careful, God's not holy? Are you a sinner deserving of God's judgment? You're either a perfect person or you think God is not holy. Or yes, I am deserving of God's judgment, but I'm going to work this out. I'm going to tip the scales and do enough good works that in the end it will work out. How do you know how much is good? How good is good enough? The only thing that we can cling to, the only thing we can sing of, the only thing that is our salvation is this amazing grace we've sung about. Grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus would come and die in our place to save sinners. The one who didn't know any sin would die the death for sinners. And so do you believe this good news? Because in Luke 5, 12-16, we see Jesus heal a leper. Jesus, the leper begged Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus answered, I will, or some of your translations, I am willing, be clean. Lepers were the outcast, not to be touched. But your, the scriptures say, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And healed him. And the way that we under, understand infection is the sick person infects the, the healthy person. But when Jesus, God in the flesh, stretches out his hand, this is reversed. It's no longer the sick person infecting the healthy person, it's the perfect person, Jesus Christ, healing the sick person. And how did this man's life change? How have these 16 million people's lives changed since the cure for leprosy in these past decades? I get to be a part of the society. I get to experience human touch again. I get to be a part. I don't get to just be overlooked or looked past. Go show yourself to the priest. Where does the leper go? The leper gets to go to the city. But where is Jesus? He's still out in the the desolate places. He's in the surrounding regions. The people who are going to participate are going to be in the city where the worship of God is. And Jesus takes his place. He can now go into the city because he's now outside the city. He'll be even crucified outside the city. And as great as this healing was, it was just a picture. It's a picture of the greater spiritual reality that the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. That this kingdom has begun at Jesus' ministry and it will be consummated, fulfilled at his return. We're still dying. We're still sick. But there'll come a day when there'll be no more tears and no more death and no mourning and no crying or pain when the former things will pass away. And this will be at the day of Jesus' return when all things are made new. And blessing upon blessing that our eyes cannot even imagine. We've not even heard of the wonders that before us. 
And while we look to that future grace, there's, there's real blessings now. And so this miracle is a demonstration of Jesus' authority and his compassion. He speaks, the disease leaves immediately. Jesus is the Savior whom sinners can take refuge in and seek after. Are you willing? Lord, if, you, if you're willing, if you can, I will. Some of us don't think that Jesus has the will to heal. We may think that he has the power. He just doesn't have the will. Jesus is the Lord. He's to be worshipped by all. Do you see in verse 15 and 16, this little parenthetical section before we get to the healing of the paralytic? What does Luke highlight between these healings? The prayer life of Jesus. You would think that once we get this ball rolling and the fame is now spreading through all the region, man, strike when the iron's hot. Let's go after this. Let's double down and, and let's build this celebrity culture that he now has. And what does he do? He does what's countercultural and seeks to withdraw even more as the fame is building. We want to promote and publicize. Build your brand. Keep in the public eye. Go direct with social media. You can do. You can bypass everyone and go direct to your own platform. But as Jesus' fame spread, so his pursuit of private prayer increased. It's a man I often quote, J.C. Ryle. Let me do it again. Few professing Christians strive to imitate Christ in the matter of private devotions. There is plenty of hearing and reading and talking and visiting and teaching, but is there a correct proportion of private prayer? Are believing men and women sufficiently careful to be frequently alone with God? These are humbling and heart-searching questions. And we will find it useful to give them an actual answer. See, the more busy life gets, and the more people press into us, we looked at last week when they were pressing into Jesus, the more Jesus prayed. We're in Luke chapter 5. Next, the next chapter, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In those days he went out to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Are we too busy to pray in private devotion? And the honest answer for us often is yes. We're just too busy. There's a lot going on. But what does that answer betray about how we view life in relation to God? If, if we're too busy to pray because we are doing all the things what it says is we're doing all the things and we've got to either got it all figured out or we'll figure it out along the way. We can do it in our own strength and in our own wisdom. If, if we can't figure it out, we'll talk to someone else and keep really busy talking to someone else. But the silence of being before holy God is unsettling to our soul. I can go on a diatribe. I, 
And we're in a very dangerous age where we're, it's impossible to be alone. First of all, we're in an age where everything is image-based. And so the word has no power because everything is image. You can trace it from the television on. The, the, the images are just getting closer and closer to us. And that's all it is, is image. And so word is diminished. And then also noise is amplified. Do we not see that as spiritual warfare? To get us so busy and distracted, self-consumed, that we don't commune with God. I don't know how to do it, Derek. When in Luke chapter 11, when we get there, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. We've got, we got to go a couple chapters, and they keep seeing him pray. This all, we're, he's healing people. He's teaching people. His calls and stirs. We're following him around. He keeps praying, and then finally they just said, teach us to pray. And so maybe this needs to be our posture today. Lord, teach us to pray. Luke continues to now detail the healing of a certain paralytic. For many of you, this is a very familiar passage. Look at verses 17. It's on one of those days as he was teaching. He's here teaching. They're astonished at his teaching. His word possessed authority, Luke recounts in chapter 4. But look who is here for the first time in Luke's gospel. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Reports of Jesus, the fame is spreading. It's going to all the regions. And now what comes from all the regions? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. His fame is going out, and now those Pharisees and scribes from those regions are now descending upon Jesus. They were the most influential of the major religious groups in first century Judaism, along with the Sadducees, the Essenes, and even the Zealots. The Pharisees would say, here's what the law says, now let us help you apply it. Here's what God's Word says, now let us give you some traditions on how to work that out into everyday life. And so there became traditions to the law of how we can live faithful lives in covenant to God. But they're there to evaluate Jesus' ministry. Who is this man? Look at their posture. They were sitting. Now we need to understand that sitting is a little opposite of the way we sometimes do it. Sitting is the posture of authoritative teaching in that day. So right now, I'm standing, you're seating. But honestly, it should be flipped. According to first century custom there, the teacher would sit and would teach. The Pharisees are sitting. Do you remember when Jesus sat? Luke chapter 4, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Remember in chapter 5, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Teaching from a sitting position, when you sit down, you're, you're making judgment. And here the Pharisees are ready to judge Jesus. I'm going to evaluate here in this posture of authority. Here in this teaching session, look in verse 18 and 19. 
Behold, some men were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, or sometimes the, it translates crippled. Couldn't get in there because of the crowded house. But they wanted to get and had to get him where Jesus was. We're trying to get this sanctuary renovated, learn a little more about construction than I knew before. How is homes constructed in ancient Palestine? It's flat roofs. This may have been a wealthy house where it was actually tiles that could be removed, a, a very carefully ornate tile. Or this may have just been the mud that's kind of compacted down and then in sections they got moved. But whatever it is, tiles were removed because they had somehow maneuvered their friend who was on a stretcher, got him up on the flat part of the roof, removed tiles, and then rigged something up to get him down. There before Jesus. Just think through the mechanics of that. All the details. We'll get to Jesus. How did they get to Jesus? For a Gen Xer like me, this is a MacGyver moment where if you have a pocket knife and duct tape, you can figure it out and solve it all by the end of the... Some of you millennials have no idea what I'm talking about. You're just like, Siri, how do I get down to the roof? You're like, is there a YouTube video to... They wanted to get to Jesus. Nothing was stopping them. They were not going to hang back and like, well, maybe we'll catch him on the exit. The earnestness of these friends shows us that getting close to Christ is not a casual thing for those who understand their need. And they will stop at nothing to get to his presence. R.C. Sproul. Who was earnest to get you to Jesus? Think upon your own life story and who faithfully taught you, prayed for you, shuttled you to and from church, to and from vacation Bible school, wherever. Who was earnest to get you to Jesus? And now, who are you earnest to get to Jesus? Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, oh, that pronoun, there. This is actually the first time we see faith, the noun faith in Luke's gospel. And faith is a word we use, but something less diff- it's belief, it's trust, reliance. Hebrews 11 says it's assurance, it's conviction. We all have faith in something. Faith always has an object. Faith is not amorphous. It always has faith in something. I can have faith in myself. I can trust and rely on myself. Or we can have faith in something else beyond ourselves. These men have faith that Jesus can heal their friend. Their faith, plural, is of these men, perhaps of the paralytic as well, perhaps even not. They believe Jesus has the power of God to heal. Sometimes when you're sick and afflicted, you don't have faith. You, other people have got to have faith for you. Faith is not just our relationship to Jesus. It's our earnest plea to get to Jesus, even sometimes for others. I, the book of James confirms that this is a principle that I'm not just kind of drawing out of thin air from this passage. Is anyone among you sick? Chapter 5. 
Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. My question still is, does Jesus have the power and the will to heal? Because if we're unsure about that, we'll take James 5 and we'll do some backflips. Yeah, that's just about the resurrection or that oil is just for municipal purposes or well, he doesn't heal really any night today, but it's the prayer of faith. Whose faith? In that passage, it's the faith of the elders. The sick person is brought to the elders who pray the prayer of faith over the person. And it has great power, and it's working. Well, that's just spiritual. Who has the... Those ministering need to have the prayer of faith. Now please, hear me out, because there's two edges we can jump off of this cliff. We can believe that if we just pray and say the right things, that everyone's going to always get healed. And that's what happened as many well-intentioned people gathered around my, my maternal grandmother as she was dying of leukemia and just forced upon her, saying, if you just had enough, we'll just pray. She's buried outside a beautiful church in Mint Spring, Virginia. She died of leukemia. She was not healed. So kind of ginning up a, a good enough prayer didn't Twist God's arm to show some power healing there. And so much of that is our experience. And so we then jump off the other side of the cliff that we no longer pray for healing. It's all going to get figured out at the end. It's all these future graces we point to, but let's not pray for God to heal now. And so James tells us, count it all joy when you face trials of many kind. We're to rejoice in our sufferings. But we are also to pray for a sovereign, loving, powerful God for healing. And so does someone you know and love or even yourself need healing today? See, faith is not just about a first belief in Jesus for salvation. Faith is our earnest prayer and communion and relationship to him. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. There's a paralyzed man. Can't walk. He's been let down through the roof. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Our spiritual need is always greater than our physical material need. So we go to Jesus thinking we need this, but he always speaks to the heart, always speaks to our soul. This man could not walk. He was dependent upon others. That was my, my maternal aunt's, one of her daughters, my Aunt Ethel, was a paraplegic. So as a kid, I, got to, I, I figured out, I knew the routine. You go to the back of the station wagon, grab the wheelchair, flip it out, go over there and help Aunt Ethel get in there, go to Woolworths, go to make the town run there in Stanton. Get her out. She was dependent. She could not 
do it on our own. Some of you have been blessed by the, the ministry of Joni Erickson Tata. I mean, just an accident. And like, you have no use of any of your extremities. Yet greater than this paralysis is a paralysis of sin, which separates us from God and his righteous judgment. We're all paralyzed by this sin nature. And our greatest need is spiritual, not physical or material. But Luke notes the power of the Lord was upon Jesus to heal. And he declares him forgiven of sin. Until you see that as the greater miracle, we're not understanding the good news of Jesus and why he came. But the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't verbally confront Jesus here. They're murmuring in their thoughts, maybe inside conversations. And actually what they're saying is actually correct. I mean, we're, re- we're, we're so ready to run roughshod on the Pharisees. But actually what they just said was correct. Only God alone can forgive sins. Jesus now says, man, your sins are forgiven you. So we're now in a place that if we follow that through, Jesus is now claiming authority to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. There's only one explanation for the Pharisees. This man is blasphemy. He's taking upon the the role of God, the authority of God. He's blaspheming the divine name. This is an open and shut case. This new teacher, this reported miracle worker, is declaring blasphemies. And according to the law in Leviticus 24, he should be stoned. But he's too popular right now. It's going to be a problem because his fame is spreading. He needs to be put down. And so we're just, this group is just going to hang back and keep ducking and dodging, keep watching him, trying to entrap him. And so here's the, Jesus is either a blasphemer or Jesus is God. And C.S. Lewis would give the, the, the trilemma here. Like, and now let me add a fourth one. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the most important question you ask answer is, who do you say Jesus is? And perhaps he's just a lunatic, he's just saying crazy stuff. C.S. Lewis would say, or perhaps he's a liar, he's a con artist, he's out here scamming people out in Galilee. We had another one, perhaps he's just a legend, maybe this is just not even true. It's inaccurate, it's not historical, it's just the legend of Jesus. Or perhaps, just perhaps, he is who he says he is, God in the flesh, the Lord. Who do you say he is? Verse 22, he perceived their thoughts. Why do you question your hearts? Which is it easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? See, we can say anything. Words are easy even if they're empty. We can say anything we want to say. In this day, you can, we can just say and claim, and, but your actions, your life has got to match it up. So anybody could just say, your sins are forgiven you. And that's what they were murmuring in their hearts about. This guy is blaspheming. But the power of the Lord was upon Jesus to heal, and today his work would confirm his words. Please see that the miracle is always there for the work to confirm the word. 
And it's actually a curious question. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? And of course the Pharisees would say, yeah. If you say rise and walk and that guy gets, stands up and walks, that seems harder. Just to say your sins are forgiven you, that seems empty and easy, blasphemous no less, but anybody can say that. We'll just stone them. But if you can say rise and walk, that seems like the harder thing to do. But for God in the flesh, which is the harder thing to do? Jesus who created the world by his word and it came into a, the one who spun galaxies out of no, matter and time out of nothing just by his word. That is nothing. But to say your sins are forgiven you and the what it's going to cost to forgive him of those sins and the path that's before him and the suffering and the forsakenness before him, that is the harder work. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Here comes his favorite self-designation. And this is not just a, a reference to his humanity, meaning Son of Man and Son of God. This is going back to Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, of a vision of a man who has divine authority to judge and rule. This curious figure in the vision of Daniel chapter 7 who is both human but also has divine authority. And in Daniel's vision, there's like a human being, but also acts as God. And now Jesus is saying that you may know the Son of Man. Jesus has made this man whole spiritually, but to demonstrate his authority, he's going to make him whole physically. Pick up your mat and we'll go home. And look at what happens. He picked up his mat. He rose up, picked up his mat, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The, big, the biggest miracle that day is that the man was forgiven of his sin because of faith. And yet his life changed, and there was real blessing in his life. Do you, or someone you know, have physical ailments, even mental illness, chronic conditions, terminal disease, just, just chained addiction? Are you or someone you know just spiritually lost? Who needs healing today? I mean, do you need healing today? Does someone you know need healing today? Our greatest need is not physical. Our greatest need is spiritual. But we have a God who loves us and cares for us much more than these birds of the air and flowers of the field. And Jesus saves. So do you have faith that Jesus is the Christ? That He is the Lord? He is how we are saved, and He alone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we may be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What if God answered all of our prayers for physical healing and all of our prayers for material blessing? 
what would it benefit our soul if we got all that and yet we're still condemned to hell? Our soul needs to be saved. And then in loving relationship, we can pray to a good God, a good sovereign God, even for physical healing with the needs of our life. We don't have to pretend, put on some religiosity and and try to do enough good for God to like you. He has so loved us that He has sent His Son. And in the days of this life, even while we look for the life to come, which will be whole and complete and perfect, Jesus cares for us and Jesus loves us. What do we learn here? Those who need Jesus are persistent in their pursuit of Him. If we're not pursuing Jesus, we really don't need Him. We'll take a little bit of blessing. Or you're not extravagant. You're not, well, thank you for this, and then I'll, I'll play a little church here. and do. Be... But do you need Him? Not only you, do you have faith for someone else? What we see here is that there's people who had faith in love for someone else and they persisted to get them to Jesus. These are prayers of faith. We're not going to demand certain outcomes or certain timetables. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and yet He's ordained prayer to be a means not only of communion, but His working in the world. It's a mystery. But don't let the mystery off-put you that we just shelve it and don't avail ourselves to prayer and the prayer of faith. What do you need today? Are we relying or trusting, having faith in ourselves or upon Jesus? If we're too busy to pray... we got it figured out. If we need Jesus, then let's cast all of our cares on Him. All of our anxieties upon Him. Because He cares for us. Let's pray.